Chapter Five of From Different Standpoints by Pansy and Fay Huntington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. Dear Una, your letter amused me considerably. The more as I had one from Eleanor by the same mail, in which she spoke of spending the day with Laura Myers and of meeting my little friend Una, whom she pronounced a very nice little girl. Now I wish I could see your face as you read that. You would rather be called proud, haughty, disagreeable, almost anything else. Well, Miss Eleanor might not enjoy some things you said about her. But I venture the prediction that you will yet be fast friends, and I fancy that you might be very helpful to each other were you to be thrown much together. Wasn't it too bad that I wasn't there with you all? Yet I laughed when I thought what an incongruous set you were. Laura Myers and Alice Perkins, Eleanor and Eunice, Tom Haddington, Mr. Romaine, and Charlie Thorpe. You didn't mention Charlie, but I suppose he was hovering about as usual. Be careful, Una, the fellow has a heart. I am looking forward with considerable certainty to a visit from Eleanor and Tom before they sail. I have not been quite so well for a week or two. The fact is, I have left off the bourbon which Dr. Mason ordered, and I find that my strength was, to a great extent, a fiction, got up from day to day by means of that same bourbon. It was a sentence or two in one of your letters a while ago, with two or three more in one of Tom Haddington's, that led me to give it up. So you see, you and Tom were in part responsible for my weakness and dullness. It is fearfully dull out here. Dr. Mason knew what he was about when he sent me out here for quiet. Sometimes the stillness is so heavy that I can scarcely endure the burden. Yet I know that if I were in New York, I should either break over the doctor's orders or die of a restless longing to get out. Here there is no special temptation to disobey. To be sure, there is sleigh-riding, but the few times I have ventured out Aunt Phoebe, in league with Dr. Mason, I suspect, insisted upon muffling me to the eyes, and so loading me with wraps that I could scarcely walk, and then burying me in cushions and buffalo skins. Thus trammeled, with Uncle Nathan for driver, and sober old Billy jogging along, sleigh-riding became a tame affair. There is nothing exhilarating about it, and I sigh for the strength to hold and guide my own fiery Sir Walter." Well, it is like anything else. Life bids fair to become a sober, jogging sort of an affair after all. I look at Uncle Nathan and at Uncle John, and wonder if I shall finally settle down to their sort of life. And then I look at Aunt Phoebe and the rest of the sewing society ladies, and think of you and Eleanor, wondering if these two had their ambitious dreams and plans away back in other days. There is just one word that expresses the life which these people live, humdrum. I hope my expected visitors will bring some life and energy from the outside world into this lonesome retreat. If somebody would only come in with a rush and a whir, and upset the quiet and order of this well-regulated community, what a relief it would be! It is a fact I am growing rebellious. I am sick of staying here. I want to be at work. I cannot afford to waste so much time. I must get well. I told Daisy so this morning, and she laughed a little. But if you can't, she said. 
That's it. Fettered. Now think of it, Una. I meant to graduate in July, to go to Europe for a year or two, come back, and make a mark. Here I am, put back a whole year at the very best. Do you remember, of course you do, the time I left Nassau for Williston six years ago, and the talk we had about my future? How eager I was for the struggle, the struggle for an education with limited means. Do you remember how grandly I had chosen between wealth and culture, in declining the fine position which was offered me in New York, and choosing to work my way up the ladder, standing then upon one of the lower rounds, a graduate of the country district school? How proud I was of sweeping the halls and ringing the bells that first half year at Williston! Don't laugh, please, but I used to imagine what I would say if somebody should snub me, which never happened, because of my poverty and my menial occupations. I would whisper to myself, Now, Perry Harrison, don't you mind. Some day you will stand head and shoulders above these fellows. Of course I was silly, but I think I really enjoyed being poor. The thought of being a self-made man was inspiring, and I think I was really a little bit sorry that Uncle Chester left me that sixty thousand dollars because it spoiled my plans. But I confess to you that I have grown to think that sixty thousand dollars is a very handy thing to have. With the means to carry them out, my plans became broader and my ambitious ardor increased. No need to tell you of my schemes, and some of them were so lofty that they might look ludicrous on paper. Well, here I am. This room is exactly sixteen feet square. I have strength to walk across it. I can look down the road and across the fields about a quarter of a mile. I can read, in limited quantities, a sort of light stuff called literature and write gossipy letters. Whether or not this is the end, I am unable to say. Daisy says, I'll tell you what I said first. My head ached. I threw down my book and looked over to the window where she sat, with a magazine, which she laid down as my book banged against the ottoman which obstructed its passage across the room. She smiled at my petulance, and I said, bitterly, No, I will not repeat the words I used, but I cursed the fate that keeps me here a prisoner, and she replied, "'Cousin Perry, it hurts me to hear you speak in that way of your best friend. If you would only be willing to trust your future with him—' "'Trust my future! If I am going to judge of what your loving God will do in the future by the present, I might as well give up the ship first as last. Look at it now, and tell me if you call it love. I have worked hard, and I think fairly earned success. My prospects for carrying off university honors were at least fair—' and then I should have been ready to use the advantages I had gained, gained too by hard honest work, gained in spite of the hindrance of wealth, and here I am with, I must own, very little prospect of regaining my strength. Daisy, I feel that I have a right to life, a right to an opportunity to use my gifts. I have earned the right, and I do say that I cannot feel that it is a just God that has set me aside at this point." It seems all wrong and cruel, so cruel. Don't, Perry, don't. Daisy's voice was full of sorrow, and I knew that I had pained her. I, conceited fellow that I was, fancied that it was sorrow for me, for my disappointment, and sympathy with my restless longing, 
and I was surprised at the vehemence with which she continued. "'Perry Harrison, I cannot let you speak so of our Lord. I will not hear it. It is shocking. You cannot know what you are saying. God, cruel! I'll tell you it is not so. He is kind and loving, even when he sends things that hurt us. And as for your sickness, didn't you tell me the other day that it was your own fault, that you overworked? What's the use in blaming God for that? I won't hear it, I tell you, and don't you ever speak that way to me again. I laughed a little, could not help it. In her excitement she had crossed the room and stood by my chair, and she looked at me almost scornfully. I said, well, little Margareta, wait until your kind and loving friend thwarts some of your plans, and then tell me if you don't rebel. Perry, she said, while a sudden pallor came over her face, you don't know what you are talking about. Then she went away. I wonder what sorrow has shadowed her life so early, for there is a shadow. There was a whole book of revelation in that white face. Why does God make the gift a burden? A year ago I might have thanked him for life, but just now it does not seem much of a gift to be grateful for. I am almost sorry that Eleanor is coming. To see her radiant in health and beauty, and Tom overflowing with strength and energy, will scarcely improve my spirits and temper. Later. And now don't you think good old Aunt Phoebe wants to take away one of my few remaining blessings? She came up to-night, after the rest had gone to prayer-meeting, as she usually does, to sit a while with me. I was writing when she came, and as I laid down my pen, she said, "'Which one are you going to make read all that?' "'Oh, Eunice is the only person in the world to whom I should dare send such a long letter,' I said, laughing. "'Her patience is equal to anything in that line,' I added. "'Well,' said Aunt Phoebe, with a long sigh, I suppose you know what you are about, but it don't seem just right to be writing such long letters to one girl when you are going to marry another. Why, Auntie, Una and I have always been just like brother and sister. I write to her as I would to an own sister. Besides, there does not seem to be much prospect of my marrying anybody very soon. Well, well, I suppose you know what you are about, repeated the old lady. But, my boy, I can tell you one thing, there'll be a heartache somewhere before you're done. Oh, no, Auntie, how can that be, when there is such a fair understanding all around? Well, you'll find out, then you'll remember what an old woman told you. Then she added, with more energy, I know, I've seen it. Poor Auntie, she is giving herself unnecessary trouble about us, isn't she? I wonder what she meant. Could it be Daisy? And is that some way the secret of the shadow which I fancy I have discerned? I suspect that Daisy told of our talk this afternoon, for as Aunt Phoebe was rolling up her knitting work, she said, Perry, when you look out in the morning, I want you to remember that over there, under that sheet of snow, there is a field of wheat, and remember that bread grows in the winter night. May 15. Two months since I wrote the last line. And even now Dr. Mason's orders are imperative. Not a line to be written or a sentence read. But what is the use of obeying? I may as well use up the little strength I have in this way, 
if I am never to have any for work that would amount to something. And that is just what they say, narrowed down, stripped of all qualifications, all consoling and mitigating, but unmeaning, words, the verdict reached is this, I may live. Oh yes, breathe, live, exist for years. But as for ever getting strong enough to bear my part in the world's strife, Una, do you call this justice? Perry End of chapter 5